welcome. This is Conversations with Shonda, and I'm Shonda from the Minneapolis Foundation, and I'm really excited to have um, Ron Davis and Wanda Johnson um, here with me today for a conversation on criminal justice reform and where their lives have taken them in their in their journeys. So I appreciate um, you listening, and we're going to jump right in. So I would love it if you would introduce yourself to our audience. So my name is Wanda Johnson. I'm the mother of Oscar Grant, who was killed January 1st, 2009 at the Fruitvale Barge Station in Oakland. Um, you may have heard of the movie Fruitvale Station. Well, Oscar was my son. Uh, Michael B. Jordan portrayed Oscar in the movie. Um, and never did I expect to receive a phone call that my son had been shot when we had just finished celebrating my birthday, which is December 31st, together. And I had instructed him to take the BART Bay Area Rapid Transit to go to San Francisco to watch the fireworks. And I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, the one who has been hired to protect and serve was the one who ended up shooting and killing my son. Ron. So thank you for having me. My name is Ron Davis. Um, most recently I served as the director of what they call the COPS office in the United States Department of Justice for President Obama. I served as his executive director of the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. And before that I spent close to 30 years law enforcement in the Bay Area, 20 years in the beautiful city of Oakland. And then I was chief for about nine years in the city of East Palo Alto. So you two are unlikely pair or maybe a likely pair, I don't really know. Um, but often when we think about, you know, if we just go into um, what happened to your son and and um, in the shooting that, that happened, the murder that happened um, there in the BART, the BART station, um, you would think you would walk away from that with hate, anger, um, you know, a, a attitude towards um, the police department that maybe wouldn't be able to get over. And then here you are, um, you know, in policing where there's been um, really increased protests across the country saying it's time for a change. We're, we're sick and tired of brown and black boys getting shot by police um, with no accountability. So how, how did you guys get to know each other and, and how, um, uh, Ms. Wanda, did you get over, I don't even know if you got over it. How did how how are you in relationship with police now, and how are you in relationship with community? Um, so I'll never get over what happened with my son, but one of the things that it has caused me to do is to begin to look at the system and work to help change the system. And I, and I believe that's one of the reasons why I can sit down with other police officers because I know that a change needs to take place and it has to start somewhere. And so if they don't know, if you don't know what they say, it won't hurt you. But if you know, you have an opportunity to change. And so with me seeing what happened with my son and seeing him killed unjustly, it put a fight in me to say, hey, something needs to be done. The training that um, police officers need may be inadequate. And so I'm willing to be a voice to say that training, more training, better training needs to take place. 
So uh, interesting, I met uh, Ms. Wanda, Wanda from my wife. So my wife is also law enforcement and following uh, the tragic murder of Oscar Grant, the department hired a new police chief and we brought in some deputy chiefs. And my wife at the time was a police chief at a university, so she got hired to go to uh, BART as part of the new leadership team to help make a difference. So, um, and so of watching her and watching them engage and watching do the assessment, I got to see Wanda and her family, their level of activism. At the same time, when I was chief in East Palo Alto and now since then is I've been very active in police reform because I agree with Wanda, the system needs to change. I think the system has to be do more than change. We need a new system. I think when people tell me the system is broke, I disagree. I think the system works exactly as it was designed to do. The systems were, was created in the 50s and 60s to enforce Jim Crow laws, to oppress people of color, and trying to tinker around the edges of a system that is designed to have the disparate outcomes is not going to work. So there's been, a, I think, a lot of movement in trying to revamp the entire system to build it from the ground up and to make sure the system is one that does engage with the community. And that reminds law enforcement that we are to work for the community and our public servants, the public's not there to serve us. So I think these paths come across because as I start engaging in my work, I see Wanda around the country doing her work. And most recently we were on a project together where we're looking at prosecutors, the role they play with regards to also involved shootings and how do we reduce deadly force. So I think the work brings us together. And I think there's a message, especially for a new generation that maybe that wants to work in the criminal justice system is although the system is flawed, although we acknowledge it has significant disparate outcomes, uh, one way to change is not the only way, is to get inside that system and force the change. And your, your viewers may tell by my voice, but you can't see as an African-American male, you know, I know what the system looks like inside, but also as a black man, I know what it looks on the outside. And as a father of black children, I have to tell my son, and, and nowadays even my daughters have three kids, what to do when stopped by the police. So those three truths, as, as we talked about earlier, those make a difference on how I look at policing, why I'm in policing, and what my role is to help change the system, is to change it from the inside so that it can be changed while people are also advocating and fighting the system and doing the things they need on the outside. Mm -hmm. How have you managed in your career to hold all of those truths? I haven't. And, and, and the reality is when I first started, um, you first thing you do with those three truths is you try to make them fit. You then try to change them and rewrite history. You try to ignore the hard truths. And I have a phrase, the truth may hurt, but selective ignorance is fatal. Mm -hmm. And finally, as I just got older and realizing that the only way to reconcile these truths is to accept each one of them for the truth that they are. And they're not gonna reconcile. They're, they're gonna be sometimes conflicting and sometimes not. It's to remind myself that the truth as a black man, my truth is, is, is already script is already written in history. It is written every day for people that look like us. Um, and as a police chief, I have the honor of working with some of the best men and women I've ever served with. So also see some of the sacrifices they make. And I don't believe that there's just this overwhelming amount of racism by the officers. I think it is structural racism that is tearing this, the country apart. I think because of that, these bad systems that even good cops can have bad outcomes. And then bad cops get to operate with impunity. So there are races that wear badges, make no mistake. And anyone who says they're not is naive and they're lying to you. Um, but I don't believe, I don't embrace the idea of the bad apples theory, mm -hmm. the bad apple on a barrel. I think the barrel's rotten and therefore everything inside of it is compromised. 
So I've, I've come to realize that to accept my truths, to accept who I am, and that one thing that means a lot to me when I became a cop, we had a saying, there's a saying they used to teach cops that we're all blue, you just happen to be black. And so I've embraced a different philosophy is that I, I can't happen to be a black man. What I am is a black man that happens to be a cop, which means I was black before I was a cop, I was an African-American while I'm a cop, and I'll be a black man to the day that I die. And I can stop being a cop. I actually have since retired. So making sure I have my priorities straight, making sure that I fight for the diversity that you're supposed to have and making sure that I can push the system to change, I think has allowed me to reconcile those differences. Um, Ms. Wanda, you came into um, working around a criminal justice reform from a tragic circumstance. And um, I had an opportunity to talk with Valerie Castile um, on, on a couple of occasions. And I've talked to her about um, not even being able to imagine what it means to grieve so publicly and to have um, the images of um, a child's last moment um, for the public to see and that um, it feels to me like there's an opportunity for the public to take control of a narrative and for people to try to manage you through grief. And somehow through all of that, you've seen a larger opportunity for change. What, what moved you to do that? And what did it, what did it take? Because there's a lot of different truths that you have to hold in that to be able to push through it. So what caused me to work to reform is seeing my son laying on the platform. And even before that, when he was telling the officer that he had a four-year-old daughter and seeing him laying on the platform and still telling the officer that he had a four-year-old daughter and asking not to be shot, but yet was shot and killed, seeing that caused me to have a fight within me to say that something needs to be changed, that I don't want to see another mother have to endure what I have went through. And all that anger that was in me turned into a purpose. And that purpose is to say that there is something wrong with the way we police and it has to be changed. So we know that there's been um, other shootings that have happened since 2009. Do you think that change is possible? I know that change is possible. And I'll continue to work towards that change occurring and fighting for that change to occur until I'm not here. You know, I always think about Martin Luther King how in his one of his speeches he talked about, you know, his dream of seeing, you know, his children holding hand in hand. And he didn't give up on his dream. He knew that that dream was going to come true. He had to keep that faith. And the same way that I will continue to do is to continue to keep the faith that the officers will some soon be trained differently they will soon be held even accountable for their actions when it comes to 
shooting males of color. And I'm just not looking for um, them to be held accountable for their actions. What I'm looking for is more training. What I'm looking for is them to come into the communities and begin to learn and begin to communicate with those who they're policing, get to know the community of people. And if that occurs, I believe that their mindset will change of how they handle some of the encounters that they face. So Ryan, you talked about the system really was designed um, for the outcome that it's, it's achieving at this moment. And there's a number of people out there in a growing sort of movement of people that want to get rid of policing. Um, and I know through your work um, with the Obama administration that 21st, community, uh, 21st century policing was part of part of the deal. <clears throat> so do you think it's possible to um, reform? Absolutely. I, I agree. Change is definitely possible. Um, I mean, I think change is one of the one thing that we can count on in life is everything changes. The question is, do we change it to where we need to be? And, and I understand the, the abolitionist theory. Um, the only thing I would I push back on with that is not the theory, because I think the system does have to be abandoned, a new one created. I think there will always be police now, whether they're police in uniform, whether they're community members who are tapped to help enforce laws in the community or community values, someone is always going to have to be there to help protect the community. How you select those people, how you train them, how you hold them accountable, how you make sure that they don't get caught. Some of the phrases when you chase, you know, um, you know, after evil, that you don't become evil yourself. How do you define evil? Um, how do you work within the community? So I, I think there's changes possible. I think just in my 30 plus years, I've seen significant changes, but I also see there's a lot more to go. And so I would say those who think that this won't make a difference, I would have to disagree. I mean, we still have disparities in our stops. We still have prisons that are disproportionately disproportionate with regards to young men of color and now increasingly young women of color. We still have the Oscar Grants and the Philando Castiles and the Stefan Clarks. We still have a lot of uh, changes that have to occur, um, but we're making progress. And I would just think that the fight has to be continued. And I think we have to see a better side at the end of it so we can get the kind of change. Some of these fights, in my opinion, are not, there's not a goalpost. There's not a finish line. These are struggles and fights that we'll have the rest of our life for those that are into community activism or where civil rights know that this is a continual fight. The passing of the Civil Rights Act, obviously, or the Voting Rights Act, is not enough. Look where we're at today. You know, the issue of law enforcement, even though we have this progress, we're seeing a new administration that wants to go back to the battle days and get tough on crime and even going after prosecutors that are very progressive and saying that we don't want to use incarceration to take a lot of as a way to solve crime. So there's a lot of possibilities, and, and I think we're making tremendous progress. I just think we just have to stay the course. When, um, so after um, Oscar's murder, the community started to protest. Um, were you in support of that at that time? And how did you interact with the police around that? And how have the tributes to Oscar at the Borough Station changed over the last 10 years? So when Oscar first was killed and the community came out and they protested, they acted knew how they knew that was in how they were trained to act okay um, I was not against them protesting um, I just reminded them to uh, 
remember that, you know, if you're throwing stuff at stores, that those people didn't have anything to do with who we have to devote our anger to, our frustration to, is to policing. And that's what I've said from day one, you know. Um, and so with the community protesting, um, I, I didn't have to go out there and do a lot of the protesting, even though I did go out there sometime. But the, the community saw and knew that a change needed to take place. And so that's their way, that was the way of getting the attention and saying, hey, what happened was not right. And so now, you know, coming 10 years later, um, I interact with different police officers in different police stations, um, really telling and continuing, continuing to tell them that we must look at how we are training police officers. You know, um, many people are not saying that, hey, tear the system down, we don't need police. Because oftentimes when something occurs, many of us do pick up the phone and call the police. We want them to come. But what we are saying is that how, look at our system, look how African-American are being killed in such a greater rate than any other nationality. And there's something wrong with that picture. And so we have to work to change that thought process of what those officers have been taught concerning African-American people. And the only way for myself and others who are fighting um, against the system is to get involved in the system, not to say that I have to you know, become a police officer, but to be at a place where my voice can be heard and as they listen, know that, hey, maybe we do have something wrong with our training. Let's look at it and let's revamp it and let's do it over if we need to. Mm -hmm. And how did you get to the point of um, identifying training as a key lever for change? So when I looked at what happened with my son and the officer who killed my son, um, during that time, his wife was having a baby she was actually, I think she delivered right during that time as well. Um, I, they actually were on 12-hour shifts um, during that time. He hadn't been with the police force very long. Um, when I looked at all that that was around what happened with my son, the one of the things that I identified with the officer is that, that his training was not, pro he was not properly trained. And I don't want to use that as an excuse because he killed my son, okay? And so his, he was not properly trained because had he been properly trained, he would have seen, well, there's really nothing going on on this platform. And so, hey, let me find out what's going on and then release all the young men and let them go. But there was a escalating by um, the officers versus the youth there, yes. It may have been New Year's. Um, it may have been noisy. It may have been thousands of passengers, but the outcome was to, the outcome should have been to make sure that those people made it home safely, okay? That didn't happen. If you watch the videos, you can see how 
instead of the officers de-escalating the situation, they escalated. And so for me, that told me that more training was needed in that area. And so that's why you hear me talking about training in some of the other um, views that I have watched when young men of color have been killed. If you look at it, you'll see the training that they have been taught. Many of them have been taught that, you know, African-Americans, their men are aggressive, you know. Um, even when you look at the when we made Fruitvale Station, you know, showing the pet bull, it was not just a dog. That was not the, it was for you to see how African-American are portrayed as that kind of animal to policers, police officers. And so because of that, it made me really say, look, we got to work to try to change this. We got to make sure these officers are getting the training they need and also that their mindset is being changed to know that, hey, that person is human just like I am. If they bleed, we bleed the same color. And so that is what's causing me to really want to see the training changed in the police settings. I believe it's on um, the Oscar <clears throat> Grant Foundation uh, website that you actually have the actual footage of the shooting um, on the BART station that day. Why do you have that on there? Because one of the things is I don't want people to forget because we sometimes too soon forget. We continue to go on with our lives and we forget about getting out there protesting. We forget about, hey, there's a system that needs to be changed. The training needs to be updated. We forget about that and we continue to go on with our lives. I don't want that to be forgotten. I want us as a community of people to always remember that we cannot just stay where we are, but we have to continue to evolve. We could have to continue to grow. We have to continue to move. And so in having that there, you won't be able to forget what happened with Oscar, but you'll also be able to see, hey, there's some community events going on on that same webpage that's saying, that's putting officers there in those places that we're having these events. And we want you to know that it's gonna take some community relations to help train these officers in their job. Because I believe that when officers come around in the communities, that also helps train them to look at people differently. And if we have more of that involvement, that'll help with the middle part of some of the things that they may have been told negative toward people of color. It may help their thought process when they're dealing with an encounter. Mm -hmm. Ron, um, what does it look like to allow community voice in to reforming policing? Um, well, I think it has to, it can't reform without it. And and I'm gonna go a little bit, I think Wanda's 100% about training but it would, it would go, you look at the system from the beginning to the end. And so that would have to go to our recruitment, who are we hiring? What kind of experiences do people bring into the job? Are they culturally competent? If you have not worked around diversity, then it's probably not a smart idea that the first engagement with communities of color is why you're wearing a badge and a gun and you're enforcing the laws. So we have to then take a look at recruitment, we have to look at the hiring. And we have to look at also the training, but also the policies and the direction. In many cases, some of the negative outcomes are based on policies 
that tell officers what to do versus allowing officers to use their discretion. And that's what I meant by good systems can have, or bad systems have good officers with bad outcomes. In New York, for example, it was stop and frisk was the, was the direction of the then mayor and of the police commissioner. But that means 30,000 cops are now following their orders to stop, question, and frisk. So change the policy, change the direction. I think the only way that works is the community has to be involved at each level. When I was in the administration, the Obama administration, we defined community policing is when the community and police, and uh, community and police are co-producers of public safety. So it's not for me as a former police chief to tell you what I'm going to do to make you safe. It's for us to be co-producers. I work for you. You set the priorities. You should have something to say about my hiring process. In fact, you should be sitting on a few panels to make sure we're hiring the right people. You should be training in the academy. You should help me understand the varying parts of the community and all the cultural competency. You can say black communities, but it doesn't mean even within those communities, it's not monolithic. And so we have a lot of different cultures and communities, even within communities of color. Do I understand them? Do I have access to them? Am I walking to community understanding my role or am I scared from the moment? Am I being trained to the point that everything that walks around me can kill me at any moment? Therefore, my hands are my gun. And if I see a brother bigger than six foot, then he's got to be a threat to me. Is that driving me? Or do I see myself having to come in a community? And the only way to do that is to community engagement, community oversight, community participation. So I think the reason why part of the system is flawed now is it doesn't really have community. Community is the recipient of someone else's system. And I think this is an opportunity for the community to step up and actually shape and form it. And here's the interesting thing about it is most cops will, will probably do better and feel better and quite frankly, be safer the stronger they have a relationship with the community. This is not something that's counter to law enforcement. I've been a cop for 30 years. I was a street cop in Oakland. And having a community around you that understands your job, you understand your job, that you have some level of mutual respect is a very good thing to have. That's to your benefit. Trying to walk in and occupy a neighborhood that you know nothing about means that you're basically stressed and nervous and afraid all day long. And now reaching for a wallet looks different. Asking you why you stopped me feels different. You want to be able to recognize that why this 17-year-old ask you why you stopped me is the same reason why my 17-year-old daughter is asking me why. Because she wants to know, right? Now, I grew up saying that because I told you so, but it doesn't fly with this generation. And cops need to know that. Grown folk have a right, and individuals in a free society have the right to question. And so I think the community has a significant role um, to play. And it's, it's, it's from an activist point of view. It's an advocacy point of view. It's a policy point of view. It's an oversight point of view. And I, I think that we need to take more control. But part of this has to be is making sure the community has reasonable expectation. And I think the question that we have not answered yet as a country, as communities, is what is the role of police in our democratic society? Why are we using policing to solve problems that cops are not trained to solve? Right. In other words, we have mental health issues and challenges. We have issues of social and economic inequalities that contribute to crime. Why are we turning to police to solve those things when the amount of money it takes to send police there could be used to actually address some of the core issues that do contribute to our community and some of the crime rates we're dealing with? Why not put some of that money into providing jobs and improving the school systems and making sure young people, especially young you know, boys and girls of color, have an equal opportunity? So, I mean, all that is to say, I think there's a significant role that community should and must play if we're going to reform policing. And as... Um a former police chief, what level of 
what have you reflected on that you feel like you did well? And what have you reflected on that you wish you would have done better? So I'm gonna start with the latter. Probably wish I wish I would have done better is when I was a street cop, um, it was right at the beginning of the crack epidemic. And so you're talking about the, yeah, I became a cop in 85. Um, and you're talking about from the 85 to the 90s, um, we were fighting this war on drugs. And literally we were fighting, and the word phrase has meaning. We were fighting a war on drugs. So being a part of that, I was convinced. And in fact, there's a lot of communities of color were convinced that the way to fight that war was just taking every, what we thought drug user, drug dealer, everything associated with that, that, um, that epidemic that used the criminal justice system to respond. What we've learned since then is that has been devastating to the community. And it has, doesn't one, it didn't work. Two, it basically put trajectories on young men of color um, to where they can never succeed. And so that part of being a part of that and not realizing or projecting what would have been the negative outcomes, uh, when I look back in hindsight, I wish I would have been more um, aware of what the, what kind of what collateral damage was gonna cause. I think once I learned and started realizing as you mentioned, balancing my troops, then what I'm most proud of as a police chief is basically fighting against the system and doing things that were non-traditional. My department was the first in the state to start to do a re-entry program funded by the Department of Corrections. We basically made sure that we engaged in, in kind of programs that try to build community relationships and reduce arrest, that we pushed back against the traditional idea that you will arrest your way out of crime and to really to keep pushing and, and changing views of my colleagues about the most effective ways to fight crime. My community in East Palo Alto was 90% of color. At one point, it was deemed the murder capital of the United States. And we were able to work together and through reentry programs, through programs that were more about building community, reduce homicides by 60% without taking everything to move to jail, without having a bunch of uses of force or shootings. It wasn't perfect by any stretch, but those are the moments I think I'm more proud of to know that it can be done. And then as I share that with my colleagues, chiefs all over the country, for them to replicate some of those practices. And then obviously serving the Obama administration was an extremely proud moment and being able to take, you know, I was in charge of a grant program, something similar to a foundation, where we would put out $200 million a year and on average maintain about $1.2, $1.3 billion in grants to law enforcement around the country and to use that billion dollars in shape where law enforcement is heading to put the kind of programs together that if law enforcement wanted those hundreds of millions of dollars, the billions of dollars, that they were gonna engage in building trust and legitimacy, that they were gonna embrace the idea of procedural justice, that we were gonna basically reduce police deadly encounters and engage in community policing and bring community voice to the table. And to be able to put that money out there and help shape that discussion, I think was very rewarding. Ms. Wanda, there's um, a lot of grief and trauma that's happened in community and We've seen um, that play out in so many ways, whether or not it's Black Lives Matters, um, other folks that are protesting, um, you know, our young men that are acting out with um, with their weapons. Uh, we've seen it in schools and all kinds of places, and it it feels like, at least from from online, what I've um, discovered about you is that um, you have also centered yourself in the middle of talking about that grief whether or not it's from other grieving parents or a community and um, being a voice of, of wisdom, uh, maybe in the midst of uh, dark times. 
has that been a key role that you've played and and how 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 does that um nurture you so just to start out with the young man that you have spoke of when my son was killed and he was on the platform and his friends were there they went through a very traumatic time um i watched them um drink more um i watched them go through not really being able to focus to hold down a job and one of the things that i learned from that is that what they saw could never be taken away from them um they had nightmares from that and so from that we decided that we would work with um different psychologists and different doctors who have um expertise in dealing with PTSD we often talk about PTSD coming from the standpoint of people coming from the military and facing it but what i found to be true is that many of our young people that walk around have and are suffering from PTSD more than we know they have witnessed so many different things that some of us couldn't even imagine and so many the young men that was on the platform when my son was killed they witnessed you know him begging for his life and still being killed and that picture played a role in their lives and so from that it cost um us in the foundation to really begin to host different meetings and different events with our youth to kind of talk about PTSD even this year one of our focuses is to really some do some more seminars with PTSD um and have people come together and really talk about what we can do and what doctors from their perspective say that we could do to help heal our community because whether we realize it or not a lot of our african american young men do face and have seen um things that as parents we may not even have never encountered or thought they seen and sometimes they don't share it right and so what we have to do and what we try to do is provide a safe place for them to be able to share for them to know that even though you may have been taught that men don't cry it's okay to cry okay it's okay for us to hug you and let you know that you know you are loved no matter what and so we've you know hosted several events like that and we continue you know to share with that um and what i do also for the parents and actually september 21st um we're hosting a luncheon um it is the 25th of september it is a remembrance day for those who have been murdered right and so we've um invited parents to come and families to come out to our luncheon to talk and to encourage them to you know don't give up to keep on fighting keep on pursuing justice and so each year i mean the foundation we have a lot of different things going on in the foundation and we're just working trying to work with our community to bring a forth bring forth the healing to 
let them know that, you know, we support them, that only through us coming together and through love can we change the environment of our community for our young men, for our young women, you know, because it's a it, it's a trickle down effect. You know, you think about it, our young men, many of our young men are suffering with PTSD. Many of our young men have been into the prison system. So what does what happens for the young women is that there's no man for them to grow up to marry. And so, you know, we're really working that, hey, you guys are tomorrow. So we have to invest in our youth today. You've shared a, a few things about um, the work of the foundation. Has there been, um, are there any other things that you haven't shared that the foundation is working on? So we just actually finished our AAU and scholarship drive. We have three basketball teams. Um, with We had a young ladies team, but we don't have one this year. We only have three male teams this year. And so we're able to go to different states and um, go into the basketball tournaments with the AAU division. And so we do that because we know that it's important for us to invest in our youth, okay, number one. We know it's important to try to get them off the streets. Um, On Tuesdays, we offer a tutoring program for them. They could come from six to seven, you know, hey, you may not want your friend to know you're being tutored. So we say, come on to our place and, you know, we'll tutor you and help you. It's okay to get A's in school. Um, And once you graduate, you know, we don't want you to just say, hey, I don't have enough money for college. So we offer us yearly scholarships. And so we was able to host our, again, our AAU award ceremony banquet along with our scholarship awards uh, banquet two weeks ago. And um, it was, we had a really good turnout. You know, we had eight scholarship recipients and they um, will be going to different colleges throughout the United States. And and we're proud of them. You know, we always encourage them, once you graduate, don't forget, come back, you know, and encourage, you know, the others. So we had a recipient um, come back and he introduced and he shared the new scholarship recipient with the audience. And so it was really, you know, good for, you know, the community to see it because we want the community to invest in our youth, you know, as well, because they're going to be our tomorrow. If if our listeners wanted to uh, find out more about the, the foundation or how to maybe contribute to it, where, where would they go? They will go to the Oscar Grant Foundation, www.oscargrant.org. We would love for you to look on. We just finished last weekend giving out 500 backpacks to our students with the school supplies in it. Um, and even this weekend, we'll be doing the same thing giving out backpacks so that they can go to school and not have to worry about um, where they're going to put their homework. And we want to be able to provide that for them. That's fantastic. I have just a couple more questions. Um, One is, you know, really whoever wants to um, jump in first, but where is the opportunity right now with moving the police department or policing forward towards a, a department that um, is in better relationship with community? Where Where is the opportunity? I'll start. I, I would ask for communities to make sure they're getting as much information as possible to raise the expectations of the police department. There's a publication that just came out. Uh, I was proud to work with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. It's an umbrella organization that represents 
some over 200 civil rights and human rights organizations. It's called A New Era of Public Safety. And there it's like a guide that was, it's a toolkit and a publication that walks your many members on what to look for for certain categories of policing, use of force, implicit bias, policies, because I believe the greatest form of oversight is an informed community. So where there's good movement right now is to for communities to embrace that knowledge and to then ask this, its police department, are you engaging in these practices? Do you have a policy that covers this? I think there's other areas in, in criminal justice reform that we can embrace right now. There's the cash bail reform. There's the uh, First Step Act to make sure that it's not the last step act. There's the issue of reentry. So there's a lot of areas that we can have some immediate effect uh, in doing that. And with the area of force, I think you'll see state by state, Minnesota being one of them as well, is working to try to engage on how do you reduce police deadly encounters? How do you hold officers accountable for using the right level of force? Like you said, and I, so I think there's there's a lot of things that are moving right now that people can jump on board with. So I jumped on board. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you a moment, uh, Ms. Wanda, in a second. But since you brought up the working group around um, police deadly force encounters, um, there's a working group. Uh, the meeting uh, um, is, is coming up here. And it's something that I've wrestled with for a long time where, you know, you're from community. And um, I see myself as a change agent from inside and uh, respect the change agents from outside. But there are times where you feel like, man, like, you know, you might have your community looking at you like you're trading, um, you're a trader, and then you're inside, you wonder if you're complicit. Like, I, I'm assuming from your career that you've been the change agent from inside. Um, have you ever uh, experienced that? Can you give me some, me and others that are experiencing uh, this emotion? No, I, I think it's common. And I've, I've felt that for a long time. You feel that pressure. And I, and I think back how we got here. I think about um, Wanda mentioned Dr. King. I think about the civil rights icons and leaders throughout that I, I truly believe that they fought for diversity. We, we Communities are demanding diversity. If we want this diversity, we then can't get mad when we get it. What we can do is hold people that look like us accountable for being there to actually enact the kind of change that has to be done. So it's one thing to go inside of a system to try to make it work and to change it and to make it serve your community better. It's another thing to go in a system and just be indoctrined and just become a part of the system knowing that it has these negative outcomes to your communities. And people should be mad at that. So as a black police chief, you should hold me accountable for being a police chief that is in fact black. You should hold me accountable for understanding the communities and the history of my community. You should hold me accountable for doing those kind of things that don't make sure I keep my job, but make sure that I do my job and make it better for the for, for my community. But I, I refuse to accept that it's a negative to go into the system. We need more black police officers and officers of color. We definitely need more women in policing. There's a lot of research about how women make policing better. We need more diversity in our government. We need more diversity as prosecutors, judges, attorneys. So I, I hope this doesn't discourage anyone from getting involved in the system and when you're figuring out what your role is to be and how you want to push back, it may be through the front line of demonstrating. We need young brothers and sisters to do that. But it also may be going in the system and making a kind of change. It could be both. We have people that have, been, have managed both very well. It could be Wanda just laid out a whole bunch of things through a foundation that works with directly on the services, works with law enforcement, works with government. I, I don't think we need to apologize for wanting to serve wanting to serve a large something larger than ourselves, I think what we can be criticized for 
is how we serve and whether we actually live up to that expectation. Very helpful, thank you. Um, to go back to um, the question around what is the opportunity you see now? What opportunities do you see now? I see that there is a lot of opportunity to get involved. Oftentimes we wait until something happens before we get involved. And so I'm encouraging people to don't wait till something happens, but you can get involved now. You can, I mean, you can start by going to your city council meetings to find out what's going on in your communities and find, and, and in those meetings, they talk about different police reforms and different things that goes on in the police um, department. And when you see that, hey, something is going on that, Mm, no, I think needs to be a change. Well, start, start right there, work to get it changed. And so I think that it's going to take all of us to work in some kind of area to expect change to take place. We're going to have to work in those different areas. Um, and so in, in just thinking about um, how, what happened with Oscar, and how so many people now that I see have just work are working to see change. Um, even you know mothers who I know personally had different things happen to their ch um, son have ran for office. Um, yeah, yeah, Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath. Yeah. You know my friend. She you know Sabrina Fulton. She's running for a council. Um, Leslie uh, Heed. She ran for council. So there's things that we see um, from the community standpoint and believe that if we get involved in those things, change will take place, you know. Um, as mothers, you know, and women, we're strong. And so if we, you know, really want to see an impact of change, it's going to require, you know, us to, you know, get in it, get involved and speak up about it, you know, mm -hmm. and to ask questions and to give solutions and know that it may not happen overnight, but I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep yelling. I'm going to keep that trumpet going until something happens. And so um, we have to take that kind of attitude. If we want to see change in the police setting, if we want to see the culture change, you know, um, that's why one of the one of the things that I love is that, you know, Ron and myself, you know, we've been on different panels together. I remember in Washington, D.C., when he was on the Obama campaign, when I was able to come there and speak, that he was open about what I had to say. And he didn't have the mindset to say, nope, I was in policing and I know that it goes this way. But he listened to what the audience around him was saying. And I believe from that listening that some of those things that he has done, he has implemented and has shared those uh, ideas that many of us have spoken to him about with places that, with other police forces and I believe it just takes one person to be able to change one person and that one person change a person. And that's when we'll see the policing culture change, when we continue to talk about it and have these conversations because they're so important. 
And I'm just, you know, thank you for even, you know, giving me the opportunity, you know, to share and voice, you know, my opinion and my thoughts about policing and what we could do to improve, you know, the policing. Thank you for that. Before we go, can you tell us about your son? I will, you know. Um, I'll share one thing is um, years ago that before Oscar died, I had been praying one day unto the Lord. And I believe that the Lord had showed me that my son and I would be in ministry together. Oscar was the type of young man and even boy who, you know, I raised in church. And he loved to get in front of people and do the prayer. He loved to get in front of people and do scripture. Um, he loved to sing. And um, he grew up and he made some decisions that I wasn't favorable for, but he made those decisions. But I, I always knew that um, even the bad decisions that he would make, um, the Bible tells you to train up a child in the way that he should grow, that when he gets old, he wouldn't won't depart from it, that they would come back. And so in that, um, that, that dream and the vision that I believe I received from the Lord was that Oscar and I would be in ministry together. And when Oscar was killed, I said, well, Lord, I thought you said we would be in ministry together. And I, you know, had this little fit with the Lord and the Lord began to remind me to look around. And he reminded me that basically I'm here today only because me and Oscar was in ministry together. Because had not that happened with Oscar, I could possibly not be here with you on today sharing uh, and talking about police practicing. And I probably would not have been. And so that brought me, you know, great comfort to know that, you know, even though Oscar's gone, he's still living. You know, I'm still going all over the United States, you know, because of what happened with him. And it may not have been the ministry that I thought and envisioned that it would be, but it still is a ministry because through what happened with Oscar, I'm still able to connect with other mothers and let them know, you know what, what you're going through, you know, God is able to get you through it, to let them know that, you know what, you may be shedding tears, but you know what, there is a purpose and whatever happened, and that purpose is for you to share with someone else so that they could be encouraged on their battle. And so uh, I'm so, God has given me such a gratefulness now to know that, you know, everything that Oscar went through was for a purpose. Um, one thing that I couldn't do at his, as his mother was to protect him from that which I would have loved to, if I would have been there, to love to get in the way and been his shield, right? But there's a timing for everything. And because of what happened with Oscar, I believe that our society became even more aware of what was has been going on, but yet we didn't know about it, right? And so because of that, I, I'm comforted, you know, and I'm grateful that it opened up eyes of people to see that there's a great change 
that needs to occur. And there's a greater cause. And, and that is that we have to learn to love one another no matter what our nationality, no matter what our differences is. And so Oscar was a young man who loved people. And even in the movie, you will see, you've seen how that um, the, the dog had died. I, I remember when Oscar was working in Berkeley, a man came in there and he had lost his dog and Oscar was so concerned about it, wanted to try to help him get another dog, you know. Um, and how even, you know, when Oscar worked at the market and the young lady came and she didn't even know how to cook fish. So Oscar said, hold on a second. So Oscar called me and his mom, my, me and my mom rather. And we began to talk to her and tell her what kind of fish to buy and how to cook the fish. And so Oscar was that type of young man who would try to help you along the way, you know. And the last story I could say about Oscar was when we lived in San Leandro, California, we lived, there was someone who lived under us. And I came home one night and his sliding door was open and there was a cord that was plugged up to the wall. And I was like, why is this cord plugged up to the wall, right? So I unplugged the cord and shut the window and I got a knock at the door about 15 minutes later. and. I said, yes. And it was the people from downstairs. And they said, um, Oscar was kind of helping us. I said, helping you to do what? And it, and they didn't have any PG&E. And so Oscar was using our PG&E with the extension cord so that they could have lights and have their refrigerator. And so when Oscar came home, I said, why didn't you tell me that I was spending all my money while my PG&E bill was going up, you know, and I was teaching. But that let me know that, you know, it's not about, it wasn't just about him, but it was about the people that he encountered. And my mindset now is if the foundation can just do a little portion of that, being able to help somebody along the way, then I know that Oscar's death wasn't in vain. I know that his legacy will continue to live on throughout the ages. And I know that someone will come back and be able to pay it forward and be rem and remember that, you know what? I was helped because of what happened with Oscar through the foundation. And now it's my time to help somebody else just because of that. Mm. That is beautiful. Thank you um, for raising such a beautiful person. So, Ms. Wanda, tell me about the mural industry. So, we had been meeting with the BART, um, trying to get a lasting memory of Oscar there. And they, um, in turn, um, agreed to put a mural up. Um, it was completed. And so there's a picture of Oscar. Every time you go up there, you'll see a picture of him along with his street name. Um, they named the street right over by the BART station, Oscar Grant Way. And so we're, you know, we are grateful in that part that um, we was able to get a lasting memory 
uh, memorandum of Oscar there at the BART station. We're not finished yet because we want that BART name change. And, you know, we want them to do a couple other things at the BART station in honor of what happened with my son. But we're grateful that um, we got, you know, two of the pieces of the puzzle that we wanted done, and that was the street naming and also the mural. And uh, it's a very beautiful mural of Oscar there. Um, visitors, when they come and, uh, and they think about Oakland, often want to go to the Fruitvale BART station and look at the mural, so we're grateful. Wow. Thank you to both of you for um, standing in your, in your truth, your experiences, your strength, to um, leading beyond your own set of circumstances um, you've given a lot to me today, hopefully to our audience. Um, I appreciate your time and uh, thank you for listening. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast, information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shadwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.